You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Good morning, Praxis. It is great to be with you. How are you doing this morning? Good, good. It is a small world. I, I came up here to Kelowna to do this event, and it's been great working with you, Josh, and, and just the team here at this church. And uh, I was at a coffee shop, and I saw a big group of people from Northeast Community Church. I'm like, I can't go anywhere and not see people. And then, and then I got friends here, actually, today that are from Northview, and they had no idea I was going to be here. I had no idea they were going to be here. Welcome. Good to, good to see more Northview faces. Uh, Praxis uh, at Northview, we pray for um, we are excited for the work that, that you're doing here in Kelowna, and it really is a privilege to just get to come and, and partner with you uh, this weekend and today and uh, get to speak on some of the most important topics that we should be talking about. Just briefly to t- let you know who I am, uh, I, as uh, Josh was saying, I, I run Apologetics Canada, uh, but I'm also uh, a father, a husband. Uh, I've been married for 21 years, just celebrated our 21st anniversary uh, last week. Thank you. Uh, and it's kind of funny. After like 20 and 20th anniversary, we had this big thing. But 21, you're like, no, oh, okay. <laughs> Got to wait until like 30, you know, 30 years till you celebrate again, I guess. But uh, I, we have two boys. I have a 13-year-old. I have a 15-year-old. Uh, and and you know, we're just in the the thick of life and and in and enjoying this season of of loving our kids and being uh, involved in what God's doing in, in apologetics. If that word, by the way, is new to you, uh, apologetics uh, comes from uh, the Greek apologia, and it means to give a, a reason or an answer. Because it was funny, I was talking with somebody this morning about apologetics, and they're like, yeah, my, my friends think about it as arguing, and, and I just want to encourage you, that that's not what it is. It, it, we read in our Bibles that we are, as Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.15, that we should be ready, able, willing to give a reason, a good reason for the hope that we have in Jesus. And and that's my prayer. My prayer is that you have hope and that you have good reason for that hope and that you're willing to share that hope with a world that is in desperate need of hope. And I think that this series that you guys are going into is an important one as you get into uh, why we have good reason to hope in in, in many different ways as we wrestle with questions. And today... Uh, I don't know if you know what you came in for, but we're going to deal with a controversial subject today. Uh, Today, we're going to deal with the subject of a biblical perspective of sexuality and gender. And I would say that this is probably one of the biggest questions of our time. And and so when I was asked, you know, Andy, would you, you know, come and speak on this subject? I said, absolutely, I will. Because I'm convinced of three things that I want to talk about this morning. And the first one is this, that we cannot avro- avoid controversial issues. Church, we cannot avoid controversial issues. I know we would like to, but our culture is not avoiding them. They're quite, our culture is quite happy to talk about controversial subjects, and we need to be able to talk on them. Two is it's important to understand how we got here as a culture. And then three, we need to build a biblical foundation of sexuality and gender. Uh, before I get into it, though, I just want you to know it is like that I love people, I love all people, and as a Christian, we are called to love, 
our, our culture. We're called to love the people of our culture. And if they are struggling in sexuality and gender, we, we need to love those people. And I have many friends and family that struggle with this issue. Like, this is, I don't, I, as I think about this issue today, I don't think there's one of us here. I really don't. I don't think there's one of us here that doesn't know somebody that's struggling with this issue if, that, with this issue if we aren't struggling with it ourselves. It's an issue that is, that is touching all of our lives, and I am sensitive to that. I have no intentions today of beating people up with the Bible or, or throwing Bible verses around to bash people up. I have no intentions of doing that. And those of you with small kids, I don't have any intentions of speaking on issues that I, I don't think that, you'd feel, uh, uh, that you would feel uncomfortable with me talking about today. And in fact, I'm going to do something that probably you haven't done or seen done enough. We often, because I think we get constantly put into a defensive position in our culture, we're constantly, you know, arguing what we're against. And I think, church, that we need to get a whole lot better about speaking up for what we're for. And that you and I understand what we are for. I don't know if you know this, but when they teach a bank teller to identify counterfeit currency, they don't teach them what counterfeit currency is. If, you know, if you were to do that, then you're just going to be constantly on this trail of saying, this is what it's not, this is what it's not, this is what it's not. But if you want, what you need to do is you need to let them know what it is. If they want to teach somebody to spot what the counterfeit is, they have to teach them what the currency is. What's the real thing? And so in many ways today, that's, that's what we're going to be jumping into. So this first point, we can't avoid controversial subjects. I know that this is a big and it's a messy topic. I'm only going to be able to address uh, it at a, at a very um, entry level. However, I have recommended some books to Pastor uh, Josh, and he is going to be sending those out this, this next week, so you'll be able to see uh, which books that I would recommend that are, that are helpful to jump into this. He also mentioned that I've, I've written some different books, um, and one of the books that I've written just recently is called Reclaimed, and, and that book really develops more of what's called the theological anthropology, an idea of what it means to be human. And so if that's of interest to you, I have some books. I would be happy uh, to give those to you today. One of the reasons, I, one of the things I often um, hear from people is, is, you know, they feel inundated with this question. It's like you can't escape it today. And, and I don't know if you feel that way, but I sure do. I mean, just last week I was watching a movie and I watched this preview for a movie. I saw nothing about sexuality and gender in this preview. Right? It had these great, you know, it got all these awards and like was, was uh, high ratings or whatever. And so I, my wife and I were watching this movie because I don't know about you, but when I watch a movie, I want to be entertained. But more and more, it feels like I'm being preached to in whether it's a movie, it's a TV show, it's the news, whatever it is. It's like you can't escape. And I think that um, Dwayne Elgin really has his finger of the pulse, uh, his, uh, his pulse. His finger on the pulse of what's going on in society when he, he's an author and he's also a, um, a media critic. And he says this. He says, to control a society, you don't need to control its courts. You don't need to control its armies. All you need to do is control its stories. And I think that that's very true. We, we are in a society that has a tight grip on the stories that are being told. And as I'm watching this movie, I was just like, man, I, was, I almost turned it off. But then I was like, you know what, I'm just going to watch it as far as I can to see, you know, what, what is the message that's being communicated? And, and, I'll, and I'll mention this a little bit more, but man, the message that was communicated was just simply that life is absolute chaos, that life is meaningless, there's nothing, 
you know, really that's grounding you at all in all of this. And at the end of the day, you just kind of need, you just need to do you, whatever that might be. You need to divorce your, your spouse, then you do you. If you need to, you know, pursue whatever it is, you know, you do you. And, and that, that's, the, that's the message. And I think that that's just ultimately, as I see what's going on more and more in our culture, the, the societal message that's being communicated. Now, listen, I'm, as, I, as I think about this topic as well today, uh, I'm reminded of, uh, of a speaking engagement I did a number of years ago where I agreed to speak at this um, maximum security prison in the Lower Mainland. And they asked me to come and speak on the topic of why does God allow evil? And I remember standing there in this you know, maximum security prison that took a lot of work just to get into, and there's all these inmates, and all the guards have left, of course, and I'm just you know, speaking to this group. And, and I'll never forget, you know, when they put you into a maximum security prison, by the way, they give you a little button. And they say, listen, if something goes wrong, just press that button. <laughs> and that's supposed to give you, you know, courage. But I remember I'm doing this, this during Q&A, and this guy stands up. He couldn't even, like, meet me eye to eye. He's just staring at the floor, and he, and he asks the following question. He says, why did God allow me to kill three people? And then he sat down. And I remember, where was that button again? Like, you know, as I, like, responding to him, right? And I'm like, okay, am I going to need to press this when we get into this question, that, like, escape button, like, please come help, I'm not sure what's going to happen here. I don't know what's going on in this person's life. I don't know how they're going to handle, you know, talking about this issue today. And, and, and I think that it, it can be such that because of that, we're just afraid to even in, engage in the question and engage in the conversation at all, and so we're just silent. We're just silent. Listen, I want to just remind you before we jump into this next point that we live in Canada. Canada is a free democracy and that we have a Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And I know that these get challenged all the time, but we have this. And it's important and it's something that we need to know that we have and that we need to be willing to defend as well. And that Canadian Charter says this, and I just want to read the beginning for you because maybe you've never read it or seen it. Whereas Canada was founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees rights and freedoms set out in it subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. Everyone has the following fundamental freedoms. Freedom of conscience and religion, freedom of thought, belief, opinion, and expression, including freedom of the press and other media of communication, freedom of peaceful assembly, and freedom of association. Today, we are exercising that freedom. We have the freedom to peacefully come together as a church and talk on controversial issues. And I, I tell you, I've read this with young people, and they're like, what, I have freedom of opinion? Yes. In Canada, you can have an opinion. And you can talk about these issues, and you can do so lovingly, with gentleness, and with respect. And that's exactly what we need to do. Speaking of that, I want to move on to point number two. It's important to understand how we got here. I was just recently speaking on this subject at Toronto University. There was a conference that, that was being held, and there was uh, a couple of us speaking. Uh, myself and another guy by the name of Carl Truman and some others, and we were talking on what it means to be human. 
and we were, we were talking specifically into this subject of sexuality and gender. And, and, I, and I, again, I think that those moments are important, that we need to have these conversations. Because one of the things that I'm beginning to realize as I talk more and more about the subject is where the controversy actually lies. Where, where are we actually um, disagreeing at the most fundamental level? And I think Carl Truman, in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, nails it. It's an excellent book, and I highly recommend it. The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Now, that's more of an academic book, but given the popularity of what he's written on, he's written a, another book that's kind of, it's a companion. It is a less academic, shorter version that's easier to, to, to grapple, and it's called uh, Strange New World. And of course, he's playing off of Huxley's book, Brave New World. And in his book, he identifies four of uh, your... your um, major players in how we got here today, your usual suspects, if you will. And they are Rousseau, Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud. And ultimately, you know, I, I want to touch on these, but I, I, we got limited time, so I'm only going to touch, touch on Nietzsche and I want to touch on Freud to help you to understand how did we get here as a culture that we are wrestling with this question and that we're wrestling it in the way in which we are. And like I said, I really want to help you to identify where the controversy's at. Where, where are we fundamentally in disagreement? Now, Nietzsche uh, wrote, obviously, a lot, but one of his most famous um, pieces was written in 1882, and it's called The Parable of the Madman, and perhaps some of you have heard of it. Because it's from that parable that we get the famous, the famous phrase, God is dead. And in it, he, he writes this. Now, again, it's a long parable, so I can't read it all, but I just want to read a section for you. He says, whether is God, I will tell you. Now, this is the madman who's, who's, who's speaking here. We have killed him. You and I, all of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How did we drink up the sea? Who gave us a sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Now listen, you need to understand what he's getting at. He's saying we have lost our foundation. As a society, we have lost our foundation. We have, we have not killed God. He's, he even talks about that in the poem. He's like, how do you kill God? But he's saying, listen, we have created a worldview in which God is no longer even a possibility. And in doing that, we have killed God. But we have also created a world in which we have no foundation left. He says, whither is it moving? Whither are we moving away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breadth of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the gravediggers who are burying God? We smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition. God's decompose. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. Now listen, this is a worldview that Nietzsche embraced. He called it nihilism. A worldview that has no meaning, purpose, or value. It is an untethered, unchained, foundationless world. And I think that he's ultimately right. If, if, if God's no longer a possibility within your worldview then it's just chaos. And that's what that movie I was watching, I'm not even gonna tell you what it was. If somebody really wants to know, you could come ask me afterwards, but I don't even wanna tempt you to watch it, because it's just terrible. 
It's just, it's just a movie that just plays off of what we see here. Everything's just chaos. There is no meaning to any of it. You are completely unchained. There's no foundation. It's just you. That's the only foundation, you. So you do what feels right. And this kind of idea gets picked up within the LGBTQ community. And I just want to read for you just one quote from Noreen uh, Giffney in her introduction to the Ashgate Research Companion to Queer Theory. And she writes this. She says, queer theory is an exercise in discourse analysis. Queer is all about excess, pushing the boundaries of the possible. And I want you just to notice, I'm comparing these with what Nietzsche wrote. This is this idea without a foundation, showing up language and discursive categories more specifically for their inadequacies. There is an unremitting emphasis in queer and theoretical work on fluidity, uber-inclusivity, indeterminacy, indefinability, unknowability, the preposterous, impossibility, unthinkability, unintelligibility, meaninglessness, and that which is uncomprehendable, uh, un, sorry, unrepresentable uh, or incommunicatable. The erotic of thinking, speaking, writing, listening, reading is a chief concern. Meaningless. Do what you need. Do what you want. Xavier Simmons, in his book, The Why Conscience Matters, writes this. He says, the self of expressive individualism, and I just want to highlight that idea. This is, this is a phrase that Truman uses and others to define where we are as a culture right now. The expressive individualism, it's an extreme form of individualism. It's to borrow a phrase from Michael Sandel, it, Sandel an encumbered self, an un, you know, uh, anchored, you know, lack of foundation, free to, to do whatever self, because this self is defined by introspection and acts of self-definition. It is associated fundamentally with its will and not its body. This is an interesting duality that we have going on in our culture right now. Therefore, expressive individualism is in an... Uh, in, invertibly, in, inevitably, uh, dualistic, and privileges the mind while subordinating the body and defining the person. We live in a culture that has become dualistic. There's mind and there's body, but our culture has put the mind over the body, the self, and this expressive individualism that you do whatever is right to you, and that could be different than what your physical body is. As you follow... Um, your unencumbered self. And so you can find then, as we talk about the subject of sexuality and gender, that they're defining these two terms in very specific ways. Sex then references one's biology, referring to their chromosomes and anatomy, while gender references one's psychology, referring to their emotional experience of themselves as male, female, or another gender or something even more entirely. Remember, it's unencumbered. There's no foundation. There's nothing holding it in place. It's allowed to go wherever it wants. And, and, and that really is something that we have to appreciate if you want to know how did we get here. Now, we were looking at Nietzsche. I want to switch camera angles, and I want to look now at Freud, because Freud's going to help you to appreciate even more so how we got here as a culture. So you've got this this foundationless self that's unencumbered, but now it's being guided culturally, and particularly you see it being guided by Freud's work. In 1920, uh, Freud really was putting forward this idea of that sex and our sexuality 
is the foundation of our humanity. And this idea really got picked up in culture and then really uh, was accelerated through the 60s and 70s with the sexual revolution. And so it's kind of this interesting duality that's happening between an unencumbered self, but yet a self that's being guided towards and being encouraged to find their identity. And, and listen, this is the important key to understand that Truman really highlights that I think we're, we're not seeing and is where the conflict really lies. And that is, is that we're living in a society today that is defining their humanity by their sexuality and gender. And, and this one took me a while to appreciate, but I have this with some of my college students. I teach a class on theological anthropology, and a lot of my doctoral work and just writing has been in the area of dehumanization. And, and so I have my students write a paper on a, a historical case of dehumanization. My students came up to me and said, I want to write on the dehumanization of the LGBTQ. And I thought, well, that's, that's new to me. You know, and, I, and I'm thinking back in all my research going, well, how did I miss that one? And, and I'm like, here, listen. I go, why don't, you, why don't you make a case for that first? And then, and then I, like, we'll engage in that because I'm open to it, but I, I can't think of, it, of a single example. Now, of course, Nazi, Germany's, Nazi Germany sent you know, homosexuals to concentration camps, but not because they didn't think that they were human. But they thought that they, they didn't want them populating. And so, and that could be something, if somebody wants to talk to me more about it, I'm happy to talk about. But my students didn't come back with anything. And they moved on. But what I began to realize is they see what it means to be human. They're being taught by our culture to see what it means to be human. And so if you don't agree with them, they see this as being dehumanizing. That you've dehumanized them, that you're not seeing their humanity. And I just want to be really clear, like... The LGBT plus community, they are human beings fully. I see them as human beings made in the image of God, deeply loved by God. And in no way, shape, or form today, or in any of my writing or thinking, have I or do I dehumanize them or see them as anything less than human. But that's the way that this debate is being uh, framed culturally, and that's the way that they feel when we don't agree or somebody doesn't agree with their position or how they self-identify as an unencumbered individual in their expressive individualism. If you don't agree, because remember, and this is key to understand, it doesn't just stop with gender. It's unencumbered. It gets to do whatever it wants. It gets to define itself however they choose to define. And so it continues. And we see that this happened throughout the 70s as we moved from the, culture, from the sexual revolution from not only with homosexuality to transgender, but to now we're into transspeciesism and we're into transhumanism. It, it, it just keeps moving. It won't stop. There's no ending place. It's unencumbered. By the way, I, I think it's important for you to appreciate that we have uh, been here before, that this is, not, um, this is not new, that the early church in the first century, one of the biggest ideas at that time was Gnosticism, which is, which is expressive individualism, with the idea that the, the, this duality, the mind over the body, you do you, we, we've been here before. The church has dealt with this from the very beginning. The thing that I, I just want to encourage you as you think about this is that you begin to realize then when we're having conversations about sexuality and gender, we're actually having a conversation about what it means to be human. 
and that this conversation is moving. I was listening to an interview that was done by somebody that refers to themselves as a Therian. If you're wondering, with regards to transspeciesism, there's three main categories. There's Therians, there's furries, and there are uh, other kin. And these are people, remember, that it doesn't stop. It doesn't stop at, what, like, what do you choose to identify as? So do you choose to identify as a cat? Or maybe it's a dragon, or maybe it's some mythical creature. Those are all possibilities, and I know that this might be like, no, that's not happening. No, it's happening. My friend, his daughter, is in class in Abbotsford with a girl who identifies as a cat, and that's being celebrated. In an interview I was reading with, with one, of these, um, one, of the, one of these people, he writes, I feel my selfhood is, uh, my, sorry, I feel my selfhood to be discreet from this body. It's not inherently me. It's just a vehicle I'm operating plus. Notice this. What does it mean to be human anyways? What does it mean to be human anyways? For most people, it's just a part of their personal exploration of their identity. Again, it's that unencumbered self. It's taken to the extreme. Now listen, I was, uh, I was, out uh, this summer in, uh, I was in Romania in Bucharest speaking at the World Congress in Philosophy of Law, and I was, I was speaking on uh, the Canadian Charter with regards to what I call our rights and responsibilities of conscience, and I was listening to one of the keynote speakers that was addressing the conference there, and, and she identified as, as a lesbian and was, was giving her presentation that had to do somewhat with, with what we're talking about here. And so afterwards, I went and I, I, I asked to talk with her, and her and I were having a great, great discussion. And there was a big group of, you have to understand, these are lawyers, judges, and mainly law professors who attend this conference, different philosophers. And there's a, there's a group around us, and I asked her, I said, listen, does it not concern you where we're heading as a culture? She knew exactly what I was talking about. So I, and, and as I continued on, I said, <clears throat> we've moved from transgender to now trans species and we're continuing, does it not concern you? And she says, yeah, it absolutely concerns me. She says, my partner even laughs about it and says that she identifies as a banana. And, and the crowd around me started laughing. And I, and I, and I said, I, I get that, I, it can be kind of funny. I go, but it's actually pretty serious. I said, you know, our laws are for human beings, they're not for cats. And I, and I find this really interesting church. And she, she completely agreed. She completely agreed. She goes, yeah, this is really concerning. Because in fact, that's dehumanizing. That's dehumanizing, and laws don't apply to cats. She goes, but this issue has become so controversial, I dare not say anything. And I thought, that is so interesting. This is somebody within that community. And they are terrified to speak on the subject. And, and again, that, this is one of those reasons why I think it's so important that we are willing to talk about it, that we, need, that we need to have these conversations. Now, here's something interesting that I've been thinking about. In the past, as I've studied dehumanization, as I've studied it from the, sla the, the transatlantic slave trade to uh, what happened in the Congo to what happened in Rwanda or Cambodia or Nazi Germany, you name it, what you see in all of these cases is that there is a person dehumanizing another person. But we are in a new era, church. We're in a new era where it's not somebody else dehumanizing you, it's you dehumanizing yourself. It's you de denying your own humanity. And I, and I firmly believe that as Christians, we need to speak up about this. We have historically spoken up about this as we have uh, spoken out against dehumanization. I think once again, we need to do the same. 
We need to be willing to talk about these things, and we need to be willing to speak up again. <clears throat> Not so much what we're against, but what we're for, because we have a culture that doesn't have a foundation, that's embracing chaos, and they need a foundation. They need a point of reference, and we need to be able to, to provide that. So as I go into this third and final point this morning, uh, that's what I would like to just briefly touch on. What does it mean to be human from, from a Christian perspective? What is the foundation that we understand our humanity be tethered to and that helps us to understand who and what we are? If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn with me to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, because it all starts there. <laughs> in our Bibles, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This is the very foundation of the Christian worldview. The foundation of the Christian worldview is that God exists and that God created you. And, and, I, and I want you to understand this, this important aspect of being created. When, when, you are, when something is created, it is given purpose. And the reason is, is because purpose and creation are synonymous. To create is to give purpose. To give purpose is to create. That you and I, in other words, have a foundation that is built on God's existence, that we have been created, and that we have been given a purpose. And as you read the Bible and as you get into Genesis in particular, you begin to see that purpose is developed and is um, communicated uh, to you and I, of why we are here. And particularly what you see from the Christian perspective of what it is to be a human being is according to our purpose. Now, I don't have a time to get into this, but philosophically, that's how we define what a thing is. You, you, you never define a thing by its parts. You always define a thing by its purpose. I want you to think about that today as you're just going along. Anything, just look at something in your kitchen you know, if somebody asks you what a glass is or a cup, you're like, well, it's actually, you know, sand or it's lime heated up, you know, with silicone in it or whatever. I mean, we never would do that. We always define a created thing by its purpose. And that's exactly how the Bible speaks about you and I, that we have been purposely created and that that purpose is fundamentally a relationship, that we've been created by a God who loves you and has created you for a relationship that you can love God. And as you love God, God's gonna teach you what he loves and God loves people. And so you see Jesus summing up the, the, the greatest commandment, right? He, he says, I'll sum up the whole law with just two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. By the way, think about that. He's quoting, first of all, Deuteronomy chapter six, the Shema. But when you say love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that is a Hebraic way of saying love God with everything that it means to be human. That's the foundation of you, relationship. But it's your relationship with God because it's that relationship that tethers you. It's that relationship that gives you a foundation that things are not chaotic and that you can understand some important truths about who and what you are. And then Jesus adds to it, of course, Leviticus 19. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. We have been called to love people. And, you know, it was interesting, we were speaking last night, <clears throat> not last night, on, on Friday night, and uh, somebody came up to me and was talking to me afterwards and just said, 
you know, one of the people, one of the, the person that I'm, I'm struggling to love the most is myself. And I think there's a lot of people in our culture today that, that are wrestling with that. They're, they're wrestling with, with their own identity and needing to be reminded that, man, God loves you. That God deeply and profoundly loves you. There, you know, sometimes movies get it right. There was this great movie I watched just recently called The Adam Project, and I don't know if they're playing off of the Christian worldview at The Adam Project, but there's this beautiful scene. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but there's this beautiful scene at the end between this father and son, and he just, he just looks at it, this father looking at his son and just saying, I, I was there when you were born. I was there when you took your first breath. And he says, he says I love you. And it's actually some superb acting. And Ryan Reynolds is playing the son. And, and he starts, some of you, he starts to break down. And I started to break down. I'm like, I'm up. And my son, my kids are like, Dad's crying again. And like, <laughs> my kids have become like the tear police in my house. And, uh, and just, and, and, and the Ryan Reynolds character is like, No, 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 I get it, Dad. I get it. And he goes, no, and, and the dad's like, No, I don't think you do. And he, and he pulls him in close. He says, I love you. Man, maybe you just need to hear that today. God loves you. And it's why, it's why he created you. And it's why God desires to be in relationship with you. And listen, I, it's a profound mystery, and it's hard to put into words. I, I think it's one of the reasons why God allows us to be parents, to be, to, to be a spouse, so that you and I can only get just a taste of the kind of love that God has for you. Because I don't know about you, man, but when I look at my son, you know, I just, I want to pull him in like that and hold him close. And, and he could be like, Dad, why, you know, why'd you have to? Like, because I love you. I, I don't even know how to express it in any other way than just to hold you, to serve you, to sacrifice for you. And ultimately, that's what we see with our Heavenly Father. Second verse I just want to mention here is Genesis 1.27. Just skip down a few verses here. In which we read, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. From the biblical perspective, the foundation of our humanity is first and foremost our relationship with God, period. The biblical perspective does not define what it means to be, human be, to be a human being sexually or, or via gender. However, we have been given a sexuality and a gender, male and female, and the purpose of that relationship is to love one another. And that in that relationship of love, there brings forth more relationship. There brings forth children and society. And that this is, that this is good. But again, I, I just want to highlight this because I know that there's a lot of single people that I think a lot of single people today feel dehumanized. Because if you're not actualizing sexuality and gender, you just feel like you're not a human being in our culture. And if, man, if you've ever felt that way from the Christian perspective, I, I'm sorry. But you need to remember, Jesus was fully human and he was single. And, and if it's okay for Jesus to be single, it's okay for, for us to be single. Amen? So yeah, you've been created male and female, but it's not, that's not what defines you. It's the image that you've been made in, not the image that you attempt to make yourself into. And I'm telling you right now, that will free you. That will free you. Do you want to be free, unencumbered? That will make you free. 
is to know I don't have to make some sort of identity for me. I can just rest in the identity that I've been made in, a loving God who's made me in his image and in his likeness. And I want you to think about how important this is then from a Christian perspective. From a Christian perspective, the foundation then is your view of God, your relationship with God. That your view of God, from the Christian perspective, is the most important view you have because your view of God informs your view of you. That's ultimately what Nietzsche was getting at. And in fact, he ends that parable of the madman by saying that the revelation of this is like starlight. It just hasn't hit you yet. It's still coming. And the full ramification of giving up on God will hit. And I think we're in a moment in history where it's hitting. This post-truth culture, the light is reaching us. And we're starting to realize what's happening when we gave up on our view of God. We gave up on our view of ourselves. My doctoral work, I studied a guy by the name of Michael Polanyi, and ultimately this is what he argued. He ultimately argued that Nietzsche didn't go far enough with the death of God. It wasn't just the death of God, it was the death of humanity. It was the death of all of us that our view of God is the most important view you have. And this is so crucial from a Christian perspective. Christianity has a high view of God, so guess what? We have a high view of of human beings made in God's image. And when you look historically at the arguments that we have made against things like slavery and against genocides of all forms, it has always come back to this. You'll read people like Gregory of Nyssa writing in the 300s, one of the first recorded arguments against against slavery. And what was his argument? His argument was, how dare you think that you, you you have the audacity to sell a person made by God in his image? Who do you think you are? And, and, and then he goes on to say, and how much do you think that's the image of God? It's been a powerful argument throughout history to see people viewed with respect, reviewed as, viewed as full human beings with dignity, equality, and inalienable rights, as we read about in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But how are you going to argue for those things without a foundation? How do we contend with the, for those things when we no longer have any point of reference to argue them from? And in fact, a couple years ago, I was, was speaking on this subject because they were, right now, this idea of being made with inherent dignity, and I don't know if you know what that means, but inherent dignity from the UDHR means that Dignity isn't something we invent, it's something we discover. You come into the world with it, no one gave it to you, so no one can take it away. But how do you argue for that, world, that view without, without God? You can't. And so they were asking different philosophers to come and to speak to this issue, to see, can we still hold on to the UDHR, or do we have to give up on it? Lastly, I just want to mention Genesis chapter 3 as we come to a close here. In Genesis chapter 3, what we see is in Genesis 1 and 2 that God creates human beings, that God creates people to be in relationship, and as God says, it's not good for people to be alone, and so God creates this helper, this, this soulmate, if you will, for Adam. In, in, other, in, in actuality, in the Hebrew, it's this other half. It often gets translated as a rib, but... 
you know, when, when Eve is fashioned together, but it means like half, that God has taken your other half and is, has completed you. It's why the Bible talks about when the two come together, it's one flesh, that, that you were created to be together in community, in this relationship, and that this relationship brings forth life, brings forth society. But, but again, that, that is all dependent on this greater relationship, this, this greater foundation that's taking place of God walking with us in the garden. God living with us, you and I being created for community with God and being com- created for community with one another. And ultimately, this is what leads to our good. This is what leads to our flourishing. Again, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the idea of flourishing the, uh, the idea, when, when something flourishes from a biblical perspective, it, it, it is when it um, fulfills the purpose it was created for. for. Again, from a Christian perspective, that's the true glory of a thing, is when it does exceedingly well in what it was made to do. And the Bible is explaining to you and I that we were created to excel, to, to flourish in relationship, and that's our true glory. However, as we read in Genesis chapter 3, that that's broken, that's destroyed. As the serpent comes into the garden, we, we identify as Satan, saying that the, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree? We don't have time to get into this whole dialogue. I'd encourage you to read it. Because as you read this dialogue, between what's being talked about between Adam and Eve and the serpent, but also between themselves, as they've, they've already compromised on what God has asked of them, what you see is that ultimately, Adam and Eve begin to question three aspects about God's character, and that this ultimately leads to their rebellion and our brokenness. They ultimately question God's love for them. They, they question God's wisdom and they question God's goodness. Jesus said something very profound in his Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 to 7. He, he ends by giving what I call a sermon on identity. He ends by saying there are two types of people in the world. There's the foolish and there's the wise. The foolish will build a solid foundation because they know, sorry, the foolish will build a weak foundation and the wise will build a solid foundation. But the wise build a solid foundation because they know storms are coming. Life has storms. You and I will experience crisis in our life. And when that crisis hits, when that storm hits, that's when the foundation that you've built your life on, that you've built your identity on, will be challenged. And it's either going to hold or it's going to crumble. And ultimately, what we see throughout the Bible is the foundation that that is built upon, it's built on God, but it's built on your view of God. And ultimately, it's built on your view and your trust that God loves you, he's good, and he's wise, and that you can trust, that, that you can follow him, and it's going to lead to your flourishing, to your good. And that this ultimately then becomes uh, a biblical perspective of what it means to be human. As you and I love God, as you and I trust God, as you and I follow God in relationship. Now, we're familiar, though, with a world that is broken, a world that hasn't done that, a world that hasn't lived up to our humanity. Now, that's not to say that we aren't human. A thing can be broken and still 
be what it is, right? I mean, just because a car gets a flat tire doesn't mean it's not a car anymore. Its purpose hasn't changed. Its ability to fulfill that purpose is what's at stake, is what's being challenged. And God hasn't given up on you. God wants us to still be able to fulfill the purpose that we were created for, relationship with him and relationship with one another. But we're broken. We're like, we have a flat tire and he wants to fix it. But the problem is we can't fix it on our own. God needs to do that on our behalf. And Jesus comes I don't know if you've ever thought about it like this, but the Bible begins with God walking in the garden, and in the best of circumstances, Adam and Eve fail, but God doesn't give up on us, and he comes back to the garden, and God walks with us once again in the person of Jesus, and he does so in the worst of circumstances, and where you and I didn't trust God and don't trust God, Jesus continually entrusts himself to God, demonstrating that uh, his, his love for his father, his trust in his goodness, his wisdom, and uh, his, his love. And ultimately, this leads Jesus all the way to the cross in which he dies for us. And, and this is what makes Jesus Jesus. Jesus never stops. I don't know if you thought of it like this. Jesus never stops loving God and loving people all the way to his own death. And in doing so, Jesus demonstrated for you and I what it truly means to be human what it truly means to live in community with God and with one another. And he is the example that you and I follow. And so uh, right now, Praxis, I know that you guys um, end your services with communion, and we're going to do that. So I'm going to ask um, the uh, band to come up as we go into a time of communion. But I just want to remind you that when we take communion, we're remembering that God came back to the garden. God came back to the garden, not in the best of circumstances, but in the worst of circumstances, and he succeeded where we have failed. But he did so because he loves you and on your behalf so that you and I can be reconciled back into relationship with God and that as we get that foundation solid and right, that we can learn from God how to love one another and how you and I can have controversial conversations with each other and not lose sight of the humanity of the other person. And to continue to love them, even if we disagree with them. And to continue to be for them and to continue to advocate for their humanity. That you and I follow in Jesus' example, that we don't lose sight of God and we don't lose sight of one another. And that we participate in our humanity through Jesus. And one of the ways, one of the analogies that Jesus uses with regards to this, one of the major ones, is that we are a part of a family. We are part of the family of God, and through Jesus, we have been adopted back in. Those of us who were once estranged, who were broken and who had fled from God, that we have the opportunity to be welcomed back, right? It's the parable of the lost son. God, God loves you. That has never changed. That will never change. And we can come back to the family. And when we celebrate communion, this is just a reminder for you and I that we are part of a family. And that this is, this is like the family coming together and having a meal being reminded that, that we have been called to be one church, one community as we practice what it looks like together. As we come to church, I don't know if you've ever thought about how humanizing church is, but we come together to love God and to love one another.